All right, well, I'm going to need you to get out your Bible. We're going to go back into the Old Testament to where we have left off in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 20 is where we are jumping back into our study of the prophet Isaiah and his prophecies to the people of Judah. Um, I'm sure you've probably forgotten all things of the previous 19 chapters. Now, hopefully, you've taken some good notes and you can refresh your mind in those things, or you can go to the website and you can listen to those sermons to refresh your mind on things that maybe you have just forgotten or you don't remember at all. Or you can go home and read those 19 chapters and maybe it will all just come back to you. I I hope that is the case. Uh, When I preached chapter 19, I told you that I had intended to also preach 20 at the same time, combine those together, but in all honesty, if you which we're going to read 20 in its entirety this morning because it's only six verses. And what we will find in chapter 20 is it's quite strange. Uh, And it didn't really fit with chapter 19 and how that was all going to flow together with what I wanted to get across from chapter 19 to you. So I set it aside for today. And so today is going to be that day that we're going to read this very short and also very strange, maybe one of the strangest chapters in all of the Bible. One of the strangest things that have been asked to do by a prophet. It's a very short book, very strange book, or or chapter in this book, but it is, I think, still pointing to some deep, deep things for us. And I hope to draw those out for us this morning. Now, it is summertime. I'm sure you maybe have been to the the pool, or you have a pool, and you've You've seen people jump off a diving board, right? Like, raise your hand. Have you seen that? Have you seen people jump off a diving board? If you haven't, you haven't been alive, right? So we've seen people jump off a diving board, and, and we've seen friend groups that are maybe younger age, and, and they're coaxing their friend to go up and jump off the diving board, and even though it's only like four feet high off the water, like it's intimidating, it's scary. And so they're, they're encouraging their friend to jump off the diving board into the water, and And so their friends go up and demonstrate how, right? They go up and they do dives or flips, front flips, back flips, 360s, all this kinds of stuff. And and they're they're showing the friend how easy, how fun it really is. And so finally they've talked that that one kid up onto the diving board, right? And they walk kind of slowly to the edge and their friends are all cheering and they're saying, do a flip, do a flip. Now, you as a bystander, you're watching this and you know what's going to happen right? So one of two things, either the kid chickens out completely and turns around and goes back, or they're going to commit to it, right? They're going to do it. And so a couple bounce on the diving board, and then all of a sudden they launch into the air. Now, this is where you find out who you really are. As they have launched into the air, now they've decided this was a bad idea. And as they've already started their motion of a flip, They did not commit to it. And what happens? They fall face down onto that water, the most epic belly flop you've ever seen, right? What a beautiful sight as a bystander. And what a most painful and publicly humiliating thing as an individual. Well, this is somewhat of what we will deal with today. A painful and publicly humiliating experience by Isaiah. He was not jumping off a diving board. He was actually following the instruction from God to do something that was quite strange, quite different, quite 
painful physically, publicly humiliating. And this was God initiated. God initiated this with Isaiah. But Isaiah, he commits. He doesn't halfway commit to this. He, he goes all the way with what God had asked him to do. He doesn't kind of halfway do it. He, he gives himself completely to the obedience of God. And this is what I want us to focus on is to commit to obedience. Commit to obedience. Look at chapter 20 of Isaiah. Verse 1 says, In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke to Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go, loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, and walking naked and barefoot... Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast, and the inhabitants of the coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped, to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and we, how shall we escape? Well, I told you it was strange, right? It's a strange chapter, a strange instance in which we have with Isaiah. Now, Again, let me refresh your mind. Isaiah was a prophet to the people of Judah. This is the southern kingdom of the two kingdoms split that happened in Israel. The northern kingdom, their, their cousins, the ten tribes to the north, they are called Israel. Now, Israel had planned to attack the southern kingdom of Judah because they would not align themselves in their allegiance against the Assyrians. And so they plan to attack Judah. And so all of this is part of the scenario that's going on. Now this chapter, it starts with telling us that the, the Assyrians came down to Ashdod, which is due west, almost straight west from Jerusalem, 40 miles. And this is over very hilly country to get to Ashdod. So if you look at your Bible map and you find Jerusalem, just go almost straight uh, to the west and you will find Ashdod on the coast. Now, the Assyrians, as they came down to Ashdod, they captured the city, but probably everything on their way there, because this is what they did. And it was in this year that the Lord spoke to Isaiah, and he told Isaiah what to do. And again, it's a very strange request, isn't it? He, tell, he tells him to take off his clothes, his sackcloth, which is a clothes of mourning, a, a clothes of, of desperation for God. He tells him to take this off, which maybe Isaiah is thinking, oh, he's going to tell me to put on something different. Nope, just the birthday suit. And so he tells him to take off his clothes and his sandals and to walk around for how long? Three years. Three years. You thought your week last week was bad, right? Three years to walk around naked and with no shoes. So what kind of application can we draw from this chapter? Do we just take the simple reading of the text of the Scriptures and say something like this? Well, if God wants to make His point, I just need to take my clothes off. No. No, that is not, that is not 
what we should take away from this. I don't think that would be maybe the safest thing or the best interpretation for you to follow this morning. That is not my takeaway for you anyways. If you look in verse 2, in verse 2, we have God telling Isaiah to do something different, strange, out of the ordinary, not culturally acceptable. He's to remove the covering of his body, to remove the covering of his feet, and to walk around in Judah for three years, doing his normal life uncovered, unprotected. Now, this takes me back to the book of Genesis, the very first book in our Bible, the book of Genesis, and then chapter 3. Now, chapter 2 in Genesis ends with, with the, the, I can't remember the first number there, but it is with Adam and Eve, they're both naked in the garden and unashamed. But in chapter 3, verse 7, here's what we have. After the fall, it says, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Now, in the Garden of Eden, there was no need for clothing, because people had a righteous view of themselves and a righteous view of the other person, and they also had a perfect peace with God. This is all perfect in the garden, but when sin came into the garden, into the world, it was all compromised. Adam and Eve both tried to cover up their shame. They both tried to cover their bodies with fig leaves, and this is what sin brings. It brings shame, and it brings guilt. It also creates a distance between the sinner and the Creator, God. Now, as you know, in this count of Adam and Eve, these leaves did not hide them from God. It really did not cover their shame or accomplish what they had hoped to accomplish. And there's more to this story because God, He intervenes. He performs an act of mercy for them. If you look at verse 21 in that same chapter, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So their attempt to cover themselves, to cover up their shame, to cover up their guilt... This was not working, and God, He provided something for them, something that they thought would last, but it didn't last, but God gives them something that would, which is exactly what Isaiah is communicating to Judah about trusting in Egypt, trusting in some other power other than God for their protection and provision will end up being a stripping away of all things they have used that are temporary. What Judah needed was the Lord's intervention and the Lord's provision, just like us. Just like Adam and Eve, they had their nakedness covered by God Himself. We must have God cover us. And we have that in Jesus Christ. We have that in Him. God covered their shame. God covered their guilt. And God covers your shame and your guilt by the work of Jesus Christ. This is the only way that your shame and guilt can be covered. It is through Him and Him alone. Now Judah and their relatives to the north, they were convinced, convinced by their king, convinced by the religious leaders that they needed to trust in themselves or into these other neighbors to protect them, these other powers to protect them and to provide for them. And what, what we need to take a note of here is that the message from God being sent to Judah was not being sent to Egypt 
It was not being sent to Cush. It was being sent to God's people. The message that was being communicated, it, it was not for Isaiah to then take his clothes off and walk down to Egypt and walk around for three years. He was to stay there in Judah. Why? This wasn't about Judah, was it? It, it was. It was about them, even though it wasn't really about them. The warning to Judah was to not trust any kind of earthly superpower, but to trust in God alone. Every power on earth will be stripped of their power at some point. At some point in time, this will happen. Egypt is going to be the example to the world where they're going to be taken away by the Assyrians, where they they will be unclothed and, and marched off back to Assyria. They are the example to the world, and Isaiah is the example of Egypt to Judah. God is being gracious, merciful to Judah, giving them a a heads up, a look into the future by using this man, Isaiah, who is committed to obedience. Now, I believe one of the examples and applications that we have from Isaiah here in this situation is his commitment to obedience. He is sold out. He is fully committed. He is diving in completely. God told him to do something, and what does he do? He commits himself to obedience. Isaiah, obviously, was committed to obedience, because why would you do this if you weren't? No matter whatever God wanted from him, he was committed to do it. Now, where does this level of commitment to God come from? Where does this come from in Isaiah? Is this a a self-originating commitment, or is this something something else? Well, we know the answer to this question because we've already examined chapter 6 in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, he has the vision of God and this personal encounter with the Lord, and there's something miraculous that happens in that vision, and he is cleansed by the work of the Lord. He's been changed by the work of God, and because of this change, in verse 8 of chapter 6, Isaiah says these famous words, here I am, send me. So his heart is changed, his mind is changed, and his commitments have changed. And his commitment to obedience is a result of his relationship with the Lord. His obedience doesn't produce a love for God, but his obedience proves his love for God. When we commit to obedience, it proves our love for him. And there's two things that I think obedience does prove, and one of those being that our obedience proves our love for him. It proves that we really do love Him. Now, the Apostle John, he, he writes a lot about this idea of love and this connection to the Lord and love. He records a lot of words from Jesus about the love that is there between Him and the Father, but also between us and Jesus. And then in his letters, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6, through 6, John writes these words, "...and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments..." is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And then in the same book, in chapter 5, John writes these words in verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. 
John hammers this again and again and again through his gospel and through these letters of what is so important to us. It's not just simply our obedience, but it is our love for God. And our love for God then determines our obedience to Him. It proves that we really do love Him when we obey Him. And your love for God, it will be coupled with your obedience to God. If your love is lacking in Him, your obedience will be lacking in Him as well. The perfect example that we have of obedience is Jesus Christ, of course, right? John writes in his gospel, chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus says these words, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So we know that Jesus walked in perfect obedience, and He had to walk in perfect obedience because He was God in the flesh. And so this perfect obedience to the Father's will was because what? He loved the Father perfectly. The obedience was there because the love was there. He loved God, and this is why he obeyed. It is the condition of the relationship that determines the level of obedience. If your relationship is bad, your obedience will be bad. You won't really be committed to it. Love produces obedience. So if you want a greater level of obedience to God, if you've been you've been struggling in how you've been obeying Him, and, and you know it, and you feel guilt and shame because of it, then you need to work on your love for Him. Not simply your obedience to Him, but your love for Him. If you put your focus upon your obedience, you will have a misplaced love. Because what will start to develop will be a focus upon how good you have been or how bad you have been, and you will treat His grace as an obligatory instance for you, not as what it is, an act of divine love for you. Another thing obedience proves, obedience proves our faith in Him. So obedience proves our love for Him, and obedience proves our faith in Him. Now, as you've read throughout your Bible, you've discovered over and over and over again men and women who have been obedient to God. Why? Because they have a faith in Him. A faith in Him in the midst of just strange and sometimes just completely ridiculous situations. Let me just run through a few examples that remind you of this. Noah, for example, as God tells Noah, you need to build a huge boat. You're going to put in all of these animals, and then it's going to rain upon the earth. It's going to flood, and everybody's going to be killed. And what does Noah do? He builds a boat. And it doesn't take him a couple weeks. It takes years, decades, about 100 years. It takes him to build this boat. And I'm sure the whole time, the culture, the public is making fun of him and bringing shame to him. But what does Noah do? He builds the boat he was commanded to do. He follows in obedience to God because he has a faith in God. Abram, before he becomes Abraham, he is told to leave his family, to to go out on his own, to take his flock, to take his, his personal family and go to a land he doesn't know anything about. God says, go to this place. And he goes, what place? The place I'll show you. You want to give me some heads up on that? Nope, just follow. And he does. Why does he do this? Because he has a faith in God. 
How about Joshua? There's many stories of Joshua, one being as he's conquering and moving back into the land and bringing the people of Israel out of exile into the land of, of Israel again. Joshua's told to overtake these cities, but one of the cities they come up against is the city of Jericho. And what is Joshua told to do? To just overtake the city, to siege the city? No, God tells him to march around it. I'm sure maybe initially Joshua's thinking, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, we'll intimidate them. But God goes on and explains, no, it, you're just going to march around day one, then day two, day three, and on and on and, until what happens finally. They march around seven times, blow some trumpets, and then what does God tell Joshua is going to happen? The walls will fall down. This seems ridiculous, right? Just, that doesn't happen. But Joshua trusted God. He had faith in Him, and so he obeys. He does that, exactly. Whether people are on board or not, people agree with him or not, he, he does it. What about Joseph? Joseph, the, the stepfather to Jesus, he married his betrothed, Mary, who culturally, socially, it looked as though she had cheated on him and, and really didn't respect him, but Joseph, in a, in a dream, in a vision, he is told to marry this woman, and he does. He follows in obedience. He follows in faith, trusting God. Another great example is Peter, where Peter is in the boat with his other fellow disciples, and Jesus isn't there, and the boat is being thrown about in the Sea of Galilee, and it's about to sink. They all think they're going to die, and then they see out in the distance, they see a ghost or a spirit coming to them. They're all greatly afraid, and then Jesus calls out to them. They recognize it's him, and then Peter says... Tell me to come out to you on the water. And what does Jesus do? Come on. And Peter gets out of the boat in the midst of the storm and starts to walk on water. Why? Because he has a faith in him. It's a ridiculous thing to even say or request, but, but Peter does it. Paul, many, many occasions where Paul is led by the Spirit of God into a city or into a region where he knows he's going to be beaten, he's going to be imprisoned, he's eventually going to die because of this progress of the Holy Spirit's work in his life, but he faithfully goes. He goes into a city because he knows God has told him to go there. He goes into a region because God has led him there. He knows the consequence. He knows what the outcome will be, but he trusts in God. He follows in faith. We go through hundreds, thousands of martyrs throughout church history that have done the same thing. That they were burned at the stake, they were eaten by lions, they were sewn up in carcasses and then ripped apart by wild animals in the Roman Colosseum. They were dipped in hot wax and burned in Nero's garden. There's story after story after story of Christians dying for their faith. Why? Because they trusted God. They followed in obedience because faith produces obedience. Faith produces that. Why did all these people obey God? even when God asked them to do completely illogical, irrational, dangerous, 
risky, humiliating, culturally unacceptable, painful, and just sometimes outright strange things. Because they had faith that God would do what is right with whatever He was asking them to do. Did they understand it? No. Did they, did they have to? No. But they had to trust God. They had to have faith in Him, and their faith was based upon God's impeccable character and His complete consistency. It was their faith that produced acts of obedience that we now look back on, we praise God that they, they followed in obedience for our benefit, that we can look at their life of faith and praise God for it. We look at these people as heroes of their faith and heroes for their obedience to God, but that obedience came because of their faith first. No faith, no obedience. No love, no obedience. If you want greater levels of obedience, work on your faith in Him. You want to be obedient to God in greater levels, in greater ways, you need more faith in Him. You need to train your heart. You need to train your mind to think on Him, to be amazed at Him, to wonder at Him. You need to let your prayers be consumed with the reminders of God's goodness and His faithfulness to His people. If your obedience to God is lacking, or maybe it's just outright just failing, like you, you, you feel like you have not been obedient at all to God, then start with these two things. Start with your love for God and your faith in God. Start asking God about those two things. God, what, what is it about my love for you that is lacking? What is it in my faith in you that is just not there? Don't focus on the obedience, but focus on your love. Focus on your faith. And then the obedience will come, and your commitment to obedience will come. And if you want to commit to obedience and be like these heroes of the faith, then here's what obedience to God requires. We see this from Isaiah 20. It, I think it requires probably more than three things, but I'm just going to simplify it to three things this morning. Humility, humility, being uncomfortable, and taking risk. Obedience to God will require these three things. The first of these being humility. In Psalm 84, verse 10, you, you know the words to this psalm, because we have a song that includes these words. It says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Isaiah had to be humble in order to follow what God had commanded him to do. Do you agree? I think that it requires a great level of humility to be like, do what? Let me just check again, God, that you are telling me to do what? And he follows in obedience. Why? Because he already said, here I am, send me. He is humble in heart. He does what God tells him to do. He didn't see this as something that was optional or preferential. He'd be like, well, God, you know, I really like this sackcloth. You probably should ask another prophet. Maybe somebody else would do it. Maybe another priest or, or someone else in the land can do what you're telling me to do. He doesn't do that. He takes what he has been told and he does something with it. And how often do we look at an opportunity and think that it's beneath us, it's, it's not really to our level, when in fact we are denying our servanthood to the Lord. 
the psalmist in Psalm 84. He writes that he would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God, which means that he values even the lowliest of positions than being comfortable with the wicked. Is that how you view the opportunities in which God has given you to serve Him? Or do you look at opportunities and say, well, that's kind of below me. That's not really on my level. That's not really my cup of tea or, or whatever else you would like to say. Any position that God is calling you into should be considered as an act of servanthood to God. No matter how earthly important it is or isn't. Have you ever heard of a man named Edward Kimball? Anybody? Anybody? I didn't think so. You probably have no idea who this man Edward Kimball is, but I want you to remember him today because he has had a massive impact upon Christianity in America, but also upon Christianity in the world. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in 1858 in Boston. Kimball made it a practice of witnessing personally to each of his students, his high school age young men, which he was teacher over. He personally would witness them and and instruct them and try to call them to repentance and to faith. And There was this one young man in his group that he felt like wasn't really listening, wasn't really paying attention, and, and so he went to see him where he worked, which was at a local shoe store. He didn't want to really even go in at first, but he, he overcame that anxiety that was there, and he went into the store and found his student stocking the shelves in that store. And he began to witness to him, and at the end of that time, as, as he left, he thought this young man still didn't hear him, he still didn't listen, he still didn't hear anything that he had told him. But he was greatly mistaken, for the student did listen and did respond to the gospel call. The student's name was Dwight Moody. Or you might know him as D.L. Moody, which became one of the most famous preachers in all of America. Now, through the preaching and the teaching of Moody has come thousands of missionaries and pastors because of his influence and the school in which he started and is still functioning today. A couple of these individuals that are a result of Moody's influence indirectly have been pastors Evangelists like Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. Millions have been impacted through the work of D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. But all of this goes back to a lowly Sunday school teacher in Boston, Massachusetts in 1858 named Edward Kimball. Kimball took his position seriously. Even though it might not have been the best one, the most exalted one. It was a humble one, but he took it seriously. And because of his commitment to obedience, the landscape of Christianity has changed drastically because of this one man's willingness to follow in obedience to God. Why? Because he loved God and he had faith in God. It requires humility to be obedient to God, like Edward Kimball. Second thing, that obedience requires, it requires us being uncomfortable. Now, through this list of biblical saints, we see almost always that when God called them to be obedient, it meant that their comfort was assaulted. 
Their comfort was not the focus. It was, it was one thing that they were probably going to have to put a bullet into. Just as we see here with Isaiah, he was told to do something that was completely the opposite of comfortable physically, mentally, socially, and likely spiritually. It's not always warm and sunny in Jerusalem, by the way. We, I think we a lot of times think it's just this beautiful tropical climate. It's not. It gets quite cold in the winter, quite uncomfortable. This would have cost him dearly, personally. It would have cost him to do this. And he understood this, and he understood that obedience to God was more rewarding than the praise of people or his personal comfort. His passion for God's glory, it outweighed people's criticism or his desire to be comfortable. Being comfortable hopefully doesn't mean that God is telling you to walk around naked for three years. Hopefully that's not what God is telling you to do. But it might mean for you to to try something new. To do something that maybe you have been neglecting to do. Which leads to my next point about what obedience to God requires, and that is taking risk. A rooted faith in God will lead you to take risk that the world will look at and they will say things like, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that's foolish. I think that's silly. Why, why would you do something like that? Why would you want to give up that or trade this or not have that anymore? Trusting in God and trusting in His instruction leads us to pursue things that our family, friends, the culture might deem as foolish, unsafe, unwise. And maybe it is becoming a missionary, going to a remote group of people around the world that have never heard the gospel before. Maybe that's what God is calling you into. Maybe it is just knocking on your neighbor's door and whom you've never met before. Maybe it's running for a political office because God has been preparing you and prodding you to take that step. You might be thinking, what if I take that risk? What if I go after that? And I've been praying about it, and I'm just unsure, and, and, and I fail. Or maybe it's just the wrong decision altogether. What, what if I do that, and I'm, I'm just wrong? Well, with that thought, you're trying to persuade yourself to just play it safe. What you are doing with that kind of thinking is saying, nah, let's not risk it. Let me give you a quote from John Piper. I think is very helpful here in how we should think about this. He says, Risk avoidance may be more sinful, more unloving than taking the risk in faith and love and making a wrong decision. Risk avoidance. Like there are people that have a job with insurance companies that estimate risk, Right? Like, their job is to estimate, how risky is this? Christian, this should not be your job. You are not to estimate how risky it really is. Our job is to love the Lord, is to have faith in the Lord, and then to walk in obedience to the Lord. Yes, you might make a wrong decision, but, but, what is worse? What is more unloving? Real faith involves risk. It really does involve risk. There are places in the world today that if you proclaim that you are a Christian, it is a matter of life 
or death. It is a matter of exile or acceptance. It is a matter of family approval or family rejection. There are people around the world who are risking their comfort, their approval, their their social acceptance, and even their lives by just saying, just confessing that they follow Jesus. But this is not the case here in America. And I think this is one of our greatest problems that we have. As As a pastor... When someone comes to join the church or say that they are a Christian, there is no risk for them. So as an under-shepherd to Jesus' flock, I must be cautious who is allowed into the sheep pen. There's not a natural deterrent of wolves or goats in America. So a shepherd must be vigilant and cautious because of how important the body of Christ, the sheep of Christ are. Let me ask you personally, when is the last time that you've taken a real risk for the sake of God's glory? I mean, a really risky thing for His glory. I don't mean like you, you went down a roller coaster or bungee jumping. Like, I mean, I guess you could maybe say that you did that for God's glory somehow, some way. But into really risking maybe your comfort, risking your preference, risking a relationship, and you did it for God's glory. When's the last time that you stepped out of your comfort zone for the name of Jesus Christ, for the gospel of Jesus? When's the last time that you did something that really required humility, where you laid down who you thought you were, and you became a servant to others? If we are to be committed to obedience to God, then we must, we must understand that this is the cost. It is costly. It is costly. Isaiah was not crazy. Now, it kind of looked like he was for three years, but he was obedient. And to those around him, I'm sure they had all kinds of things to say or to think about him. They might have said that he was nuts, he was out of his mind He couldn't be trusted anymore. And this is the same thing which the world will say to you when they see love-filled steps of obedience in your life. They will say the same thing about you. Now the question then becomes, why does God call us to do these hard things? Why? Why is this verse 2? Why did God tell Isaiah to do this? And why is this the pattern that we see throughout the Bible? Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah was walking naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. What is the purpose of doing hard things? It is for a witness to others. It's for others to witness what we are doing and they then come to a knowledge of who God is. Why? Because we're walking in obedience, we're committed to obedience because we love Him and we have faith in Him. Others are affected by our acts of obedience generations from now. And this is why God calls His people to do hard things. Things that will require you to be humble, it will require you to be uncomfortable, it will require you to take risk. I want to end this morning with taking you to James chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. James chapter 1, 
verses 22 through 25. Again, a very familiar passage, but one that I think is quite appropriate for us today as we think about our obedience. James says in verse 22, chapter 1, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What does he mean right there? Not just hearing the word and doing nothing with it, but when you hear it, do something with it. If you only hear and you do nothing, you are deceiving yourself. You are lying to yourself. You are believing something about you that is not true about you. Verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is a man, like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Why will we be blessed in our doing? Why is this the promise that James gives us? That you will be blessed in your doing of God's word, of God's commands. Because God honors obedience. God honors those who love him. God honors those who have faith in Him. This is why we are blessed. Now, this does not promise here that you'll be blessed financially or physically. It doesn't promise those things, but it does promise that there will be eternal blessing with the Lord. And being committed to obedience may require you to strip naked for three years and walk around without any shoes on but it also might just require you to do something different. It will always require you to do something. Let me end with this quote from Charles Spurgeon in one of his sermons addressing this idea of doing something for Jesus. He says, Brother, sister, do something for Jesus. Do not talk about it. Do it. Words are leaves. Actions are fruits. Do something for Jesus. Do something for Jesus today. So let's end with this. What is that something that needs done by you? What is that something that needs to happen, that proves your love for God, that shows you have faith in Him, that requires humility, that requires you being uncomfortable and taking a risk? What is that something We're going to move to a time of communion where we remember the cost of Jesus, where he gave his life, his body, his blood for us, that we would be cleansed from our sin, we'd be redeemed and brought back into right relationship in perfect shalom and peace with God. We remember this together, corporately, as we take of the bread, as we take of the cup, Jesus knew the cost. He knew the risk. He was willing to follow in complete obedience to God. And let's thank Him. Let's thank Him this morning that He was committed to obedience, even obedience to death on a cross. I want to give you just a few moments to to contemplate and to think on this question that I have for you today. 
from Isaiah 20 to thank and contemplate upon the work of Christ. I'm going to ask our deacons to go ahead and come and prepare the table. Our elders are going to join me on stage. And after you have been dismissed through the outside aisles, go back to the center aisle to your seat, and then we will partake together as we typically do.